0: Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Calliner
1: Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Calliner is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete.
0: What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. The show is made possible by patrons. Patrons like Timbo and Lisa and Daniel and Eric and Matthew and Paul and Jan and Billy and Josh and Sarah. I appreciate all of the support. Couldn't do it without you. They became patrons. Of the show. You can too, by the way, by visiting com, clicking on the link. If you uh, want direct links, they are all in the description of the podcast. So today is what? Tuesday, July the 7th, 2020, and Dominion Energy and Duke Energy announced the cancellation of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Project. They did this on Sunday citing cost uncertainty and ongoing delays. Folks in North Carolina will remember this story because this was the uh, governor's attempt here to create a slush fund. Not a slush fund, but he would totally be in control of the money, uh, although the Constitution says the General Assembly is in control of the money, and it caused a big fight between the executive and legislative branches. I'll go into some of the details on that in a minute. First, here are some details for you. 000. zero, zero. Uh, No, that's not how many pipelines we're getting to carry natural gas, although that is true. We are not getting one now. But 000, that is zero down, 0% APR, so zero interest for 24 months, and zero payments for three months. This is all at Mattressman. Mattressmanstores.com is the website. They've got all of the mattresses that you could possibly want. Uh, They've got, the, for example, Nature's Spa. It's the newest brand of mattress by Paramount Sleep. This is a series of hybrid mattresses. It is sold through Bloomingdale's, the high end department store, but it is also featured at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. They also have the Restonic Biltmore mattress line made in Fayetteville. These are the mattresses at the Biltmore Inn and Hotel. They have traditional inner spring mattresses, pocketed spring, memory foam, pillow top, natural latex, hand tufted, two sided, hotel foam, and adjustable bases. By the way, this is another part of their big. Uh, sale going on right now is the free adjustable base with select mattresses. Uh, Also, you can get a free box spring with the Biltmore mattress purchase. All right, so go check out all of the details on all of these great deals at mattressmanstores.com or go on into one of their stores. They have four in Western North Carolina, in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. Let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you five-star local delivery service a 120-day comfort guarantee experience the difference at mattress man buy local and sleep better i'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, the atlantic coast pipeline project now being nixed by the energy companies Uh, it stinks i don't like it but on the other hand the way the governor went about doing this whole thing um, left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth and so the pipeline uh, had a lot of problems going for it At the, right out of the gate. Obviously, you have environmentalist groups that were suing over it. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in June that actually allowed uh, the natural gas pipeline to cross the Appalachian Trail. It was a 7-2 to two vote on the uh, Supreme Court for that. The pipeline would have carried natural gas uh, more than 600 miles, according to WRAO from West Virginia to southeastern North Carolina. A press release indicated that public guidance of the cost of the project had increased from $4.5 billion up to $8 billion. See, so like pros and cons here. Like, okay, so you're not going to now do this $8 billion project. In early 2018, North Carolina regulators approved a key permit for the pipeline, and then within hours, Governor Cooper announced a $58 million fund that Duke and Dominion would pay into for economic development in the eight North Carolina counties through which the pipeline would pass. Lawmakers blasted the fund, which the Cooper administration would control, or so they attempted, but they don't get to do that. This gets into the technicality of North Carolina law, where... The only way the governor gets to control this kind of a fund is if there is some sort of a lawsuit that uh, creates a fund, uh, much like uh, the, well, I think the prototype on this was the Golden Leaf Fund, which comes from the tobacco company settlements. And so the tobacco companies, every year, they give this settlement money to the state, and then the state has created this mechanism to distribute the money. And that's what Cooper was going to do. He was going to set up this slush fund. I call it a slush fund because that's what it is. To me, that's what it is. He's going to create a fund and he had no bones or sorry, no meat on the bones for how this would be uh, distributed, how the funds would be distributed. He just put it out there like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a fund and it's going to go to environmental mitigation, which actually should be part of the uh, should have been part of the project. But uh, uh, everybody saw that as a way to funnel money to environmentalist groups that he needed to now buy back into their good graces because he approved a natural gas pipeline. And by he, I mean his administration, his Department of Environment and Natural Resources. And so uh, he issues the permit and uh, or his administration approves the permit. But we find out later that the permit had been approved, but then got held up because of some questions about some other stuff. And then they tried to bring in some solar Uh, company deal lawmakers blasted the fund which the cooper administration would control and quickly shifted the money to school districts along the pipeline's path the money was never paid into the fund because litigation stalled the project here is what um uh governor cooper said in a press release statement sunday quote this decision and the changing energy landscape should lead to cleaner and more reliable energy generation in north carolina So now he's going to be like, oh, I never really wanted that pipeline anyway. (laughs) Okay. All right. Whatever. Um, So that's it. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline. It's a done, dead deal. So we're not going to get natural gas uh, running down the coast here to southeastern North Carolina. So sorry to all of the farmers that we were told we're going to benefit from this big project. You're not going to benefit from this project any longer. Cooper tried... To create a fund that he would then get to direct to his preferred organizations. And lawmakers said you can't do that because the Constitution of this state says all of that kind of funding goes into the general fund and it is controlled by the legislative branch, not the executive branch. You did not win a lawsuit to get that money. And uh, that's why the money got redirected into schools. Although now there's no money. Okay, then. So what else happened? Governor Cooper vetoed a broad health measure late Monday because it contains a provision that addresses the confidentiality of death investigation records. This is Senate Bill 168, I believe, or 158, right? We talked about it a couple of uh, days ago. Uh, Opposition to the item has served as a rallying cry for demonstrators for racial justice outside the executive mansion for days, according to the Associated Press's Gary Robertson. Um, Look, This story to me is, this is one of those things. This story to me is really prototypical of the way government policy coverage occurs in North Carolina. Just like the Moral Monday people could advance narratives through the North Carolina press, so too can Black Lives Matter, right? So too can these racial justice protesters. There was like 20 of them, and they camped out. Uh, On Blunt Street outside the governor's mansion for the last week or so. Uh, And uh, some of them got arrested early on. But this is problematic for the Democratic governor because this is his base. Okay. The protest caucus of the Democratic Party, right? This is their base. He cannot anger them, he he cannot uh, uh, kick them out, he can't treat them too roughly. Right. I don't know if he's tried to send cookies out to them like Governor McCrory did. <laughs> but but if he did, I'm sure it would be seen as a as a kind overture rather than uh, insulting and sexist like uh, Governor McCrory's effort. Anyway, um, those were what we called protest cookies back in the day. Oh, those were those were the days. Was that like seven years ago, six years ago? Yeah, they were protesting outside the governor's mansion, a bunch of these lefties. And he went out and gave them a plate of cookies and uh and it, they dispersed, <laughs> which <laughs> anyway, um, no cookies for these kids. Uh, but this, this is what I mean by a prototypical example of the way politics gets covered in this state. So there is a reporter at the News and Observer. She notices and she's only been there like this. is She's like a rookie reporter there, but she notices this legislation that includes Uh, an exemption of public records or it it makes basically if a death investigation uh, is confidential because of the investigative agency uh, has called it confidential. Then uh, when it goes to the governor or sorry, goes to the medical examiner, then the medical examiner doesn't uh, have to abide by those confidentiality rules. It becomes public record. So this law would have changed that and would have turned it all into confidential records if it comes from an agency that has deemed it to be confidential just basically to make it all the same. And what and when the media saw this, they were like, "Well, wait a minute. We do reporting on, for example, COVID-related deaths, and if you're going to mask all of this, then we're not going to be able to see it." But more importantly, for the racial justice folks, it's about police death investigations. And if cops kill someone in custody, Or if they die in a jail, if they label it confidential, goes to the medical examiner's office, uh, then it becomes public information and the media finds out the details of it. And this change in the law would mask that. uh, And so the media was like, this is unacceptable. So when you frame it through the racial justice lens, the kids who had kind of run out of things to protest about after a month of protesting and spreading covid all around the state uh they kind of needed something else to get angry about they're just kind of waiting for the next you know uh, uh the next cop to abuse somebody so they can go back out and continue the riots cuz honestly like my opinion on this is that um they have a lot of free time on their hands Nobody's working. Everybody's getting their Trump checks, their Donald dollars, or whatever. Right? People are getting unemployment. Nobody is open. People are depressed. They're angry, and uh, this is a socially acceptable form of social gathering, mass gatherings. You're not going to get ridiculed or attacked as irresponsible uh, for going out there and protesting for this virtuous cause. So they can. So they're like, okay, well, here's this Senate Bill 168. Let's let's protest for that. And the media, who generally never get this kind of traction on a wonky public access type law, they're like, oh my gosh, look at these kids. They're paying attention to my story. And so now they're like, yay, kids. They were all over when the kids found out that Governor uh, Cooper vetoed uh, this bill uh, last night. They were like, we were right there when when the kids found out and they were celebrating and all this. like, And we did this, kids. So... This is, this is part of what animates reporters. It shows that you got something done. You had an impact. Sorry. You told a story. And people responded just completely organically on their own. In his veto message, Cooper said that the provision could limit transparency in death investigations. And we all know that Roy Covert Cooper is all about transparency, which is why he got sued by just about every media organization in the state. Right? Because his administration has been been holding back. They've been not releasing tons and tons of information, not responding to FOIA requests and the like. So we all know Roy cares a lot about transparency. The state constitution required that he act on this before midnight or it becomes law on its own. And... um, the provision would have made clear that death investigation records held by law enforcement and deemed confidential under public records law retain that same confidentiality when handed to a state medical examiner. Protesters have been camped out outside since last week. This is, again, the AP report. The House Rules Committee, this was interesting because yesterday the Rules Committee, um, they recommended repealing the provision and... Um, They said that they would. They approved in late June uh, this measure, but uh, the House was scheduled to vote on the measure today. But the veto makes the action moot. Lawmakers could now attempt to override the veto or pass again the same measure as before, just without that one provision, and then send it back to Cooper. So the House was getting ready to move on this, but Cooper uh, had to take action, or else it would become law, and so he just vetoed it. And then, of course, he stands up there, you know, and gets the credit and praise and the claim from his, uh, from his base, <laughs> All right? The protest caucus of the Democrat party. Uh, what else happened? Senate bill one Oh five Cooper vetoed, uh, eight bills in total, by the way, and Senate bill one Oh five was one of them as well. It would have required the governor to get approval from at least six council of state members. Uh, we're going to get into this, uh, in a minute here. So, uh, in order to extend any of his executive orders, this bill would have required him to get approval from the Council of State, a majority of the Council of State. Several Democratic legislators have called the Council of State concurrence requirement. That's what they call it, the concurrence requirement. Uh, they call it a poison pill. Okay. Two bills that Cooper vetoed, House Bill 258, would have reopened amusement parks and arcades. And Senate Bill 599 would have reopened skating rinks and bowling alleys. Um, they also, Those bills also contained the language that would have required Cooper to gain council approval, the concurrence uh, poison pill, Democrats called it. That language was removed from House Bill 806 which would reopen fitness centers and gyms. He vetoed that too, though. So all of them get the veto. Nothing's allowed to reopen unless Governor Ray says so. And that is one of the reasons why Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest filed a lawsuit against Governor Cooper. He is challenging the executive orders related to the COVID-19 response and specifically the process by which they have been implemented. Here is some audio from Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest's press conference last week.
1: This is the only option left on the table, as all others have been exhausted. This lawsuit is not interested in the substance of Governor Cooper's orders. Let me say that again this lawsuit is not interested in the substance of governor cooper's orders it specifically addresses his lack of authority under the emergency management act to shut down north carolina without the concurrence of the council of state
0: so let me define the council of state these are the 10 members they are all of the executive branch uh, according to wbtv's nick oxner he had a story about this the other day, uh, and he says that the Council of State meets once a month, and its biggest task typically is to approve the sale or transfer of state property. Okay, pretty unusual that it is controversial. And I've been you know, covering state politics for 20 years in North Carolina, and generally you never get any kind of news out of the Council of State meetings. Okay, the Council of State has 10 members. Right now, four are Democrats, six are Republicans. The four Democrats are Roy Cooper, the governor, Attorney General Josh Stein, Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, and Auditor Beth Wood. Those are your four Democrats. Six Republicans, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, Commissioner of Agriculture Steve Troxler, Treasurer Dale Falwell, Commissioner of Labor Sherry Berry, Commissioner of Insurance Mike Causey and Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mark Johnson. So, by the way, yes, you heard that right. These are all Council of State members, all elected statewide, and six of the ten are Republicans. So, just remember that when you hear people talk about how, you know, Democrats need to have more seats in Congress, they need to be a majority because they have more voter registration, blah, blah, blah. Yet, more people voted statewide for Republicans than Democrats. These races are proof the Council of State makeup is 60-40 Republican Democrat. Just feel like I, I feel like I need to point that out. It's kind of important.
1: From the beginning of our country, Americans have rightly been suspicious of executive power. When the governor has delegated power, it is not absolute. There exists a system of checks and balances which are necessary to ensure that we respect the freedom of and the will of the people. One person in the position of Governor or Secretary of Health is not allowed under the law to shut down wide swaths of the economy indefinitely. Governor Cooper has not followed the law. In March, Governor Cooper announced via social media that he was going to shut down restaurants in a matter of hours. Then. A few hours later, he asked Council of State for approval of his plans. He then held a press conference announcing his plans while the Council of State was in the process of voting via email. The majority of the Council of State voted not to approve the executive order because the governor allowed no time for discussion of an order that shut down 11% of the state's economy without sufficient time for those impacted to prepare. The governor chose to unilaterally move forward in defiance of the law and the council of state. To date, he has not sought concurrence on six separate executive orders related to shutting down North Carolina.
0: Now, Governor Cooper does not deny any of what Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest just outlined. He doesn't deny any of the 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 TikTok, the timeline, right? They say the same thing. Yes, we, we went to the Council of State, we asked for concurrence, and then we didn't bother waiting around to get the concurrence. We just went ahead and announced it anyway. Um, the attorney or an attorney for uh, the state of North Carolina representing the governor here, Ashley Vargas, told WBTV, quote, as a reminder, for the March 17th order limiting the sale of food and beverages to takeout, drive through and delivery, the order did not require concurrence as the governor and the Secretary of Health and Human Services have the authority to do this under state public health and emergency powers law. So the state is saying, Governor Cooper and his administration are arguing that they don't need to get concurrence from the Council of State on this stuff. But Dan Forrest says... Governor Cooper acted beyond his authority, and if he didn't think he needed concurrence, then why did he seek it in the first place?
1: In times of crisis, the rule of law is more important than ever. We must do the right thing in the right way. No one, governor or citizen, is above the rule of law. I am asking the court to invalidate Governor Cooper's unlawful executive orders that continue to shut down large parts of the economy until he receives the concurrence of the majority of the Council of State as required by law.
0: All right, so the North Carolina General Assembly has tried to reopen various businesses in North Carolina, like the gyms and the bars, and I just went through all of the legislation that Cooper vetoed, right? These pieces of legislation all had that concurrence provision. Now, Cooper was asked about these bills and the concurrence provision at a news conference last week, right? He was asked specifically about this concurrence provision and um, whether or not he thinks uh, that it is acceptable or, as the Democrats argued in the legislature, that it's a poison pill.
2: The executive branch and the governor needs to have the flexibility to be able to make decisions about the public health and safety of the people of this state. There are some decisions that require Council of State approval. There's some that do not. And we have followed the law. Uh, what I think these laws would do would be put, to put more bureaucracy in this. And we see right now in Arizona and Texas where governors are having to make quick decisions about going backward in their progression through their phases in order to be able to uh, protect the health and safety of the people in Arizona and Texas. And that's something that public health officials and the governor should be able to do without the bureaucracy that would be laid out in these bills.
0: Right. So bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is what he calls it, which is interesting A word that I didn't think any Democrats actually knew existed because of their love for the size of GovCo. But uh, what he's talking about, bureaucracy, when he says that word, he's talking about elected officials, members of the Council of State, the executive branch of which he is a part, uh, trying to fulfill the oaths of their office, that they should have the ability to do their job. He calls it bureaucracy, not representation. Isn't that interesting? when he doesn't want their input because do you think by the way the democrats have always voted with him on all of his concur uh, 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 on all of his executive orders right they've been on board with him on this stuff they voted for all of the executive orders they concurred um, republicans not so much if the council of state was majority democrat do you think he'd have a problem going through the council of state yeah probably not <laughs> Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show was also made possible by Rowena Patton and her All Star Powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house, but you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her All Star Powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should too. Call her today. mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and at oldgrouch.com. Alrighty, so it seems like Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest's lawsuit presents a pretty straightforward question. Did all or did some of Cooper's actions on his SHIOS, his stay-home executive orders, did they violate the law? Uh, Forrest did not present any legal arguments at his news conference. Instead, he told reporters that they'll be uh, uh, the arguments will be made in the legal brief in the lawsuit. Laura Leslie from WRAL said, quote, Republican governors that were closing sectors of the economy that they had reopened because the virus is running rampant. So what would you have the state do at this point? Uh, That's really not relevant to the lawsuit. No, it's not, Laura. It's not relevant to the lawsuit at all. (laughs) You see what I mean? He's talking about the process and the media focuses on, well, isn't Roy Cooper right? Like, there's this automatic assumption that Roy needs to be able to do what he wants to do because he's looking out for us. Like, it's a question of whether or not the law allows him to do this. And... Uh, By the way, he still has not answered. Governor Cooper still has not answered the question, even when it was posed to him directly once in the last three months. Once one time it got posed to him directly, which was if you didn't think you needed concurrence, why did you seek it? If you didn't think you needed this, why did you ask for it? And then when you didn't get it, you went ahead and did what you wanted to do anyway. Right. Why did you seek a thing that you didn't think you needed? And he hasn't answered that because he can't answer that. Exactly. He can't answer that. All right. So let me back up again. Uh, So Laura Leslie says, uh, so what would you have the state do at this point? Uh,
1: That's really not relevant to the lawsuit, Laura. But the point being that this is about the overreach of executive power and the rule of law. That's what this lawsuit is specifically about. Uh, I would say that uh, as we see the case numbers go up even in North Carolina as testing, as you know, is going up significantly as well as we continue to test into communities uh, in the, the tracing and tracking program that is going on, that we should very specifically Focus our efforts on those communities where the issues are very similar to what's happening in, in Florida and in Texas, where the mayors and the county commissioners are taking actions, not necessarily the governors taking actions in these instances. So, uh, you guys have on your website, as well as the News Observer has on their website, even a breakdown down into zip codes. I don't, I don't believe there's a one size fits all approach to this. So, we have numerous counties across North Carolina that have no issue at all uh, should those counties be required to follow the same guidelines as the very specific locations as to where the outbreaks are and where the where the big problem areas are for our state. So I think it's time to move beyond the overall one-size-fits-all statewide uh, emergency plan and move into a very specific uh, attack on where the problem areas are in our state. That's how I believe you're gonna learn how to live with a virus that we may not find a vaccine for this may go on for a while
0: all right so laura leslie followed up but in texas and florida the governors took action i'm asking what your position would be it depends on the situation i mean
1: what you know as well as i know there's a complete lack of data transparency in north carolina you've been asking a lot of the same questions that that i've been asking along the way there's a lot of data points
0: that are just that have just been missing well 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 wait a minute Governor Cooper clearly said when he vetoed that other bill, right, clearly said he's all about the transparency. He wants there to be transparency. I don't know what to make of this. You're telling me that there's not been data provided? man it's like cognitive dissonance occurring here
1: uh so while we continue to track number of cases uh the cases are going to continue to go up until uh there's a vaccine uh, for the virus we we all know that, that that but we track that every day and it becomes a headline every single day the new number of cases the reality is many of those cases have recovered we know that we should be tracking what we call active cases i believe we should be tracking uh, symptomatic ap- uh, cases as well. I believe we should take out of the data the 60 some percent of deaths that are happening in congregate care facilities because they have absolutely nothing to do with the general public in the lockdown. They're separate issues. Uh, there's lots of data that we can get into, but the most important one now is certainly hospitalizations and specifically ICUs and how people are being impacted uh, in the hospitals themselves. Are the The reason for beginning this entire process Uh, as you recall, was to flatten the curve. And we asked the people of North Carolina to make great sacrifices to flatten the curve so that our hospitals and our hospital workers did not get overrun. We have never had a curve problem in North Carolina. Our hospitals have done a marvelous job, and our hospital workers have done a marvelous job responding to the need. Uh, We don't have a problem on hospital rooms right now, availability or ICUs while at the same time, elective surgeries have gone up and people are still having elective surgeries and obviously filling ICU rooms for that. Uh, Those hospitals in those specific locations where there are issues uh, could roll back the elective surgeries. They could free up hospital space, bed space when necessary. Mm -hmm. They're already communicating and working together uh, to let each other know where the hot spots are and where the issues may be in the future. And I think you have to address it in that way.
0: Right. So this is all going to become very clear. What Dan Forrest is explaining here, a guy by the name of Dr. Atlas also explains. He's with the Hoover Institute. I've got some audio from him. Um, when you see Governor Cooper and the media and his allies, right, uh, they they are focusing on case numbers and even hospitalizations. But those numbers, that data set is not all that instructive. Okay, for a number of reasons, we're going to get to this. But uh, maybe at some point, media will, you know, I don't know, explore these ideas that Forrest is Putting forth rather than just dismissing them because he's a Republican trying to take out our governor. It seems to me like that's their uh, their response. They're not asking him about the data points here. Right. They're not asking him to explore this stuff. He just makes these comments and everybody just moves right on past because they think, oh, here he's just anti science, you know. So here is um, a question about why file it now? Why not go after the governor back in March when he did this order? Why would you wait all this time? Dan Forrest says that he and the Council of State tried to have discussions with Governor Cooper. They tried to express to him that these elected officials believe he acted outside the scope of his executive authority.
1: And so we made that very clear uh, that, that the rule of law was broken and the governor did not have this authority outside of that. We were told... Uh, very specifically, that he did not need um, the he did not need the Council of State's concurrence for his executive order. In fact, I was even told by um, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services that she did not need that either. That she had wide-ranging powers to be able to shut down the restaurants on her own. So uh, that really defies the rule of law as well. So we went through the Council of State uh, multiple times. We've asked the governor to have. Broader information sessions with the Council of State to explain uh, his executive orders and explain why these decisions are being made. We've asked for data, as you all well know, on multiple occasions. We've asked just for some very specific data. If you want to base your decisions on science and data, I believe you should make that science transparent and you should certainly make the data transparent, but specifically related to the Council of State. There are 10 people on the Council of State. Um, 10 heads are better than one in some cases, and I think that uh, these people all bring valuable information. It's a bipartisan body, as you know. So they bring valuable information to the table. Uh, Dale Falwell has been very clear of the impact, uh, the irreparable harm that's being done, especially down east, On this, with our municipalities and our counties uh, related to water bills and power bills and those kinds of things, where they're going to be billions of dollars uh, behind in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, these are just conversations that should be had amongst Council of State members. So, we went that avenue.
0: Do you think it's interesting? I do. Do you think, spoiler alert, I think it's interesting that the governor, when he says he surrounds himself with all of these experts for his task force and uh, uh, What are the, you know, his, his advisors and the people that are helping him make all of these decisions? Do you find it interesting that he doesn't need feel the need, at least to seek out Republican input from elected officials that represent the very same people that he does? Right statewide. In fact, some of these people got more votes than he did anyway. I think it's interesting.
1: We were also, even the Council of State members, we were hoping that the General Assembly was going to be able to address some of these issues as well, so we waded through that legislative process and uh, there were several bills that came forward, but none specifically dealing with the overreach of power, uh, none specifically dealing with veto overrides of some of the decisions, and so once the legislature was done and they left town, then we said we've exhausted all options and uh, this is the path to go. I've always had the same philosophy since I got involved in politics, and uh, some people will say this is, this is political, what we're doing. I, there's nothing politically expedient about suing the governor, ever. It doesn't politically work in your favor, but mm. my office motto, my team motto has always been always do, do the right thing, no matter what the cost or the consequence. That is what I believe, and I believe, again, as I said in my statement, that in times of emergency, it's more important than ever to uphold the rule of law. So that applies to governors. That applies to citizens as well.
0: Dan Forrest said that the impact of the lockdowns has been severe. He said it's been disastrous for some North Carolinians who have lost their businesses uh, and they're not going to reopen. And now you're starting to see, day by day, you're seeing more and more announcements of, like right now, we're seeing restaurants that are just done, out of business. Uh, Four of them in Asheville announced that they're not reopening ever. They're done, they're out of business. It's been catastrophic. There are
1: people, as we know, that uh, across the state are dealing with depression and anxiety and addiction of, of all kinds uh and i don't think we're going to see the effects of what a lockdown does to your state outside of the coronavirus issue separate from the coronavirus issue but Mm -hmm. what does a lockdown do psychologically uh to the state and to the people of our state i think there's going to be real damages long term that we're going to have to figure out and so we spent we've been spending our time going out and meeting with people and hearing these stories and listening to the stories i think that's really important It's, it's extremely important as you're trying to pass legislation or make laws or do executive orders to get beyond the uh, the four walls of buildings like this, if you will, and go out there and hit here where uh, the real stories of pain actually
0: exist. Right. And this has always been a component that uh, the Democrats in this state uh, and uh, their media allies choose to ignore and position as a false choice between lives and money. I uh, just saw one a political cartoon drawn up by some leftist uh, from Progress NC, whatever they are, um, saying, oh, bottom lines matter. Like, that's all that matters to the Republicans. Like, let it let everything reopen. Let everybody die because the bottom line is what's important. It's such a dishonest argument. Only idiots and ideologues make this argument. And there are actual costs associated with lockdowns, actual human death tolls associated with these decisions. You're not going to see them in a daily tracker at the governor's Health and Human Services website. But there are death tolls attached to the lockdown. Forrest says that when the government orders businesses to close, and then they do, and then they lose everything, and they go bankrupt, he says there is a moral obligation to help those business owners. He says it's also time to make a general shift in our approach.
1: I think it's time to make this shift away from, uh, away from a fear campaign, which is just about the numbers increasing every day to a campaign of hope. We know that the death rate is actually decreasing. We know that in general terms, the um, percent positive tests, even as tests are going through the roof, is generally, is generally remaining the same, could be going down because we are going into communities and in testing where we know there are outbreaks specifically. So the the percent could be going down if we were testing the general public as a whole. Uh, So I think there's some positives out there and there's some things that we can look for, always being optimistically, cautiously optimistic as we we move forward. But I think there's some positives as well. So I think we need to, uh, by providing more data, more complete, comprehensive data, I think we can take the fear away from a lot of people.
0: Right. This campaign of fear, I'm seeing this uh, framed like this uh, more and more in the last few days. Because it really is becoming pretty obvious. And look, I I mean, I've joked for years about the way the media approaches everything, which is if you're not scared, we're not doing our job, right? That's that's the way they approach all of their coverage. This household item might kill you details, you know, after the break. Oh, my gosh, what is it going to kill me? What is it in my house? Oh, my God. Right. This is the way the media operates from their headlines to the teases, their promos, all of it. And so this covid stuff is sort of tailor made for that kind of approach. The, the problem is, is that, again, you're doing actual damage to people's psychological well-being. You're doing damage to their finances, their businesses, their relationships. There are so many impacts that the uh, lockdown has had that, that our government in North Carolina doesn't even talk about. They refuse to discuss any of it. All they talk about are the case numbers the, and the hospitalization numbers, and that is not the appropriate data to focus on. Okay. Dr. Scott Atlas is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and he says the idea of preventing infection is not just unnecessary, it is irrational. Irrational. Okay? Do you think you're going to hear any any challenging questions like this to the governor at his press conferences from our North Carolina press corps? I doubt it. It is irrational. The uh, this idea of preventing infection. That's why it is not about the number of new cases, he says. That's not what this is about.
3: You have to look at who's getting infected because we should know by now that the goal is not to eliminate all cases. That's not rational. It's not necessary if we just protect the people who are going to have a serious complication. So when we look at the cases, yes, there's a lot more cases uh, by the way, they do not correlate in a time uh, sense to the uh, any kind of reopening of states. If you look at the timing, that's just a, a mis, uh, misstatement. That's a false narrative. Uh, the reality is they may correlate to the new uh, mingling from protests and, and uh Massive demonstrations, but suffice it to say that the vast majority of cases are in younger, healthier people. The overwhelming majority of cases, in fact, we know younger, healthier people do not have a significant problem with this disease, with the infection. 99% of people who get infected, in fact, have no significant problem with the uh, infection. What we do know is that the death rates are not going up. Despite all the, you know, hand-wringing, that's what really counts, is are we getting people who are super sick or dying, and we're not? And when we look at the uh, hospitalizations, yes, hospitals are more crowded, but that's mainly due to the reinstallation of medical care.
0: This is something that Dan Forrest said last week, that you have the, the hospitalization numbers, they're essentially inflated because... Yes, you have. I mean, when you're looking at beds in ICU and hospital beds and you're trying to judge capacity, you're not those beds are not being like cordoned off and, and, and reserved only for covid patients. No, hospitals have now been bringing people back in and allowing these elective surgeries. So the beds are being filled. But if they need to rebound and they need to dial it back down because you get some surge in people that need to be hospitalized for covid. You have the capacity. See, so just looking at the number of beds doesn't tell you very much if you don't understand what you're looking at. For non-COVID patients, when you look
3: at Texas, uh, OK, 90 plus percent of, IC, uh, of ICU beds are occupied, but only 15 percent are COVID patients. Well, the, 85% of the occupied beds are not COVID patients. So I think we have to look at the data and, and be aware that it doesn't matter if younger, healthier people get infected. I don't know how often that has to be said. They have nearly zero risk of a problem from this. The only thing that counts are the older, more vulnerable people getting infected. And there's no evidence that they really are. When you look at the data from all the states, which I've done, there's no data to say that older vulnerable people are getting infected and and they're and dying
0: it isn't the rising case numbers to look at you got more testing you got more mingling so you got more rising numbers it's misleading um you need to look at who's getting infected and you need to look at the death rate he looks at every state several times a day Uh, And he says the trend is clear. People who have confirmed cases of COVID-19 are in the younger age groups who do not suffer from severe illness. He says low-risk infections are a positive thing that will actually help us progress towards population immunity. He is also seeing improvement in certain key metrics. We see the hospitalization length of stay
3: is about half of what it was. We see the mortality rate for people who are hospitalized is one fourth of what it was. What does that mean? That means A, we're doing a better job protecting the vulnerable, which is the goal. B, we're doing better at even treating people who actually need hospitalization. And then we have to look at two other points. It's, it's anecdotal but because it's hard to prove, but it looks like about 20 to 35 percent of people hospitalized as COVID hospitalizations are hospitalized for something else. And they just test positive. They're asymptomatic. They test positive for COVID-19 and they are then categorized as COVID hospitalizations. Even if you're coming in to have a baby for appendicitis, for a kidney stone, if you test positive for COVID-19, you're, cal- you're called a COVID-19 hospitalization. I mean, that's just not that's misleading information. And again, it instills fear.
0: It instills fear. Um, When younger, healthier people get infected, he flat out says that is a good thing.
3: Why does that sound like a good thing? Because that's exactly the way that population immunity develops. When you have low risk groups get infected, become immune, that is how you break up the the sort of connectivity pathways to riskier older sicker people that's what's called herd immunity there's nothing wrong with having low-risk people get the infection as long as you protect the high-risk people which apparently is being done because this explosion of cases has not caused increased deaths that is de facto proof that we're not having a problem with
0: more cases right Death rates are the key, and death rates among certain populations. There's no evidence, also, there's no evidence that early opening states have had worse mortality rates. In fact, they actually have better rates. States like Florida and Texas, right? And Georgia, these states actually have better mortality rates than the states that got hit early. Also, he says schools need to reopen.
3: I mean, there's a couple things. This really needs to be said there's, it's not like, okay, let's stop schools. There's no problem with that. There's a huge problem with that. We're supposed to be educating the children. The schools are for the children. The children have virtually zero risk by the facts all over the world from a significant infection. They have zero risk of death. They have nearly zero risk of spreading infection, even to their parents. This is validated all over the world by the facts. And we're sitting here saying, oh, we better close schools. Why? I mean, there's zero reason for this. If we want to protect the teachers. Teachers in K-12 through schools, the median age is, is 41. That means half are younger than 41 in the U.S. 82% are younger than 55. For the rare teachers that are in a high-risk group, they can protect themselves. They don't know how to use six-foot spacing and wear a mask if they want. Or if they're so afraid, they can stay home. They can stay home and teach from a distance. There's zero reason to lock down the schools when the children have no risk. The harms, by the way, are critical here to understand. We have in Boston area, 50% of students don't even log on. Distance learning is a failure. There's a 30% drop in reading level. This is also contingent on having the, what I call the paraphernalia of the affluent. Not everybody has it, oh, they could just buy another iPod or I, iPad. And, you know, the other thing to understand is that we have child abuse going up, okay? This is the unreported, heinous, egregious problem with closing schools. The schools are the number one location where child abuse is reported. That's not happening if the schools are closed. The schools are where children learn, by the way, that they need a hearing aid or glasses. That's not being done, and so we have a 35% increase in the pediatric emergency rooms of serious child abuse. We're talking about people who bring their kid in to the hospital because they think they may have killed them or broken their bones, 35% uptick in that. We know that that's the tip of the iceberg here. When people lose their jobs, When they have problems at home with our serious financial problems, which have been caused by the lockdown, not the virus, the lockdown, child abuse is going way up. We're not even seeing it because the schools are closed. There's so many problems with keeping the schools closed, yet we're going to keep them closed when children have zero risk, zero risk. We're going to keep them closed because of the rare teachers that are afraid to go in. That, to me, is really an outrageous abuse. It, 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 it's really disgusting. I don't even know how to uh, really fully explain how bad a decision that is.
0: He made these comments on Good Morning San Diego with KUSI and its host, Paul Rudy. Um, this is, I suspect, what Governor Cooper was dancing around last week when he was talking about getting buy-in from educators and such about the different plans for reopening and everything. I think what's going on here is you have teachers who don't want to go back to work because they're afraid, that they're afraid they're going to catch it and die. And I'm not minimizing that fear. I'm just saying that's why the schools have not been reopened uh, by the governor in an announcement right now. That's what I suspect is going on. But this uh, Dr. Scott Atlas is exactly correct. He also attributes backtracking by governors – that have gone you know, backwards and locked stuff down. He calls it um, fear and ignorance. Several failed to do what was required to protect vulnerable populations early in the pandemic and are doing political calculations, he says. Public health experts should be lowering the level of fear people have by giving a realistic assessment of the severity of the disease for most people. For most people... COVID-19 has a 99% recovery rate, and that is something you probably don't know if you watch CNN. Okay, that's not my line. That's Stacey Lennox's line from pjmedia.com. All of these articles that I've been referencing are available uh, at the Pete page under Pete's Prep uh, uh, via the Patreon platform. Remember the Wake Forest study? the one that got funded by Phil Berger and the General Assembly because the governor and the DHHS refused to do so. This was uh, a serology test, uh, blood tests. And they partnered up, They, they, uh, the General Assembly called on the governor to do it. The governor refused to do it. His office wouldn't do it. Uh, the administration wouldn't do it. And So uh, the General Assembly said, we're going to take this $100,000 out of this research budget that we have and we're going to give it to Wake Forest Baptist Health and we're going to let them do this experiment. And they have found, so far, that between 12 to 14% of people tested in North Carolina already have the antibodies for the coronavirus, meaning they've been exposed to it, with most of them showing little or no symptoms at all. The majority of the study participants are in the triad area. The findings suggest that COVID-19 is less deadly than originally thought and that the death rate for the disease could be in the range of 0.1%. What does that mean? It means 99.9% of all of the people who get it will recover. The study also shows that there is significant community spread and that efforts so far to curtail COVID 19 are faltering. John Sanders, the chief of infectious diseases at Wake Forest Baptist, said, quote, it's a double-edged sword. We are clearly seeing a rapid increase in the number of people that uh, that we have antibody evidence who have been infected. But he says the vast majority of these people have very few or no symptoms at all. We can look at it and say the death rate is lower than we have estimated. The severity of symptoms is also lower than we estimated. And the vast majority of people who were infected are going to do fine there's a message you don't hear from the governor at his press conferences that's a wrap for this episode please remember subscribe to the podcast give it a positive review i appreciate it and consider becoming a patron of the program you'll get cool stuff and exclusive content links are all in the description of the podcast we'll talk to you later don't break anything while i'm gone